Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Your hosts are Andrew Douglas, Managing Principal, FCW Lawyers, and Karen Liu, Principal Consultant, Sound Consulting. Yeah, Karen, how are you? I'm doing mighty fine. How are you? I'm good. Blum after Melbourne University doing my master's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. It's, it's a big deal for me, you know. Next, yeah, you can be. Next can... month I'm going back to school, people. That's right. You're not just a tiger parent now. You're a, I don't know where you oh. tiger something. Huh? Tiger student. Tiger student, that's right. <laughs> no, the um, executive MBA um, starts next month. So, yeah, it's always something that I wanted to do. So and I've got in and, yeah, it will be really exciting. I'm sure there will be. There'll be moments of uh, frantic stress, but hey, it comes with it's part of the package, right? It's always been part of the package, Karen. So on that <laughs> and for everyone who, um, who's joining us, that means that once a month on a Friday, I will be missing in action. But having said that, we've got a great group of people. Great understudies here. We're pre-COVID prepared. Absolutely. One of us can fall, another one just steps down plates. That's it. Well, you're... Well, that's, well, that's right. I'm, I'm overseas for my first holiday in two and a half years, so we're going to be testing... The comms to see if it works, but if it doesn't, there'll be Matt sitting here doing it. So lots happening in the next few weeks, but let's get on to what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. So a lot of cases, a lot of really illustrative cases today, but also some really interesting law as well. In Axiantro and Anthony Parcel Services, we're seeing this problem around independent contractors and safety again. And cases really about a, a truck driver who is an independent contractor and whether he had some sort of liability to check in with the organisation because he was an independent contractor and some liability ensuring that he was competent and capable of using the vehicle and that he properly checked the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And the court said, well, no, you don't because he is a competent, very experienced driver. And that all sounds quite an easy case. Mm-hmm. It just flies in the face of most of safety law that says that when a person drives, goes to get him to drive a vehicle that's unfamiliar, they must check it and there must be a system that ascertains they did check it. So this is quite a limited case because these are just parcel trucks. Yeah. But if it was an earth-moving equipment, and there is some very large case, including the first reckless endangerment case, that says when a person gets into unfamiliar vehicle, they must go through a safety routine to ensure that they're familiar with how that vehicle works and how to do so safely. So this case will be misused far too often for this issue, and it misunderstands also safety law, which says that a person can call himself an independent contractor, but if they aren't from an established business with dedicated safety services and which audit, risk, which, of course, an individual never is, mm. then they're your responsibility entirely and you treat them as if they're an employee. Mm. So, interesting case. It is, and, and I think that this, how it, this matter frustrates a lot of employers is, well, okay, how much do I need to do? How far do I need to go then when it comes to safety? And the answer is... There is always a responsibility. Okay, can we accept that there's always responsibility, but the extent of how much you do depends on the resourcing of yep. the independent contractor. Okay. But it's also contingent on the level of risk that exists in that operating environment. It does. And yep. to come to the first part, an independent contractor in safety terms, in other words, when you carve out the liability organization for an individual or, or contractor who works for you arises where you have evidence that satisfies you on a continuing basis that that contractor is doing everything that's reasonably practical to provide a safe working environment. 
-hmm. Well, an independent contractor who drives a vehicle is not, okay, mm -hmm. is most definitely not that person. So they are your liability because safety law isn't too concerned about employee status. Mm -hmm. It's concerned about safety. So good case. And as I said, more illustrative, don't think the law is the greatest law that's ever been set. And if you're in a more complex environment with different large and dangerous vehicles, it has no application at all. Next case is a couple of cases on COVID. Um, Edwards and Regal Cream Products, which is the, the Buller Group, had a guy who refused vaccination. Buller had an, a very a fulsome process of actually managing the mandatory vaccination orders, and these were government government orders. And they said, look, here's all the information you need to know as to why it's important. We give you an incentive to go and get vaccinated and we provide you with medical consultation in the event that you're reluctant to be vaccinated. This guy resisted at every level and eventually said, among other things, that he may have been vaccinated. They said, well, sign an authority, let's have a look at your medical staff. And he refused to sign it. On that basis, he was suspended. And ultimately, his employment was terminated because he wouldn't be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. He also sought long service leave and the provisions under long service leave, in this case, they said, look, you can't take it, you're suspended, you're not actually at work. You can't go from being suspended and take long service leave. Look, interesting process, isn't it? because I can't see the win in that particular process, but that's more of a cultural way of saying, no, the rules are the same for everyone. And you've got to admire Buller and what they did. They were terrific at it, weren't they? They were. I think their process, Andrew, I, I dare say that that was best practice, quite vigorous and quite impeccable in terms of how they've laid it out, the consultation, the regularity of the communication consultation. So very good there. I think the other part of it that's really important was their generosity in, of, in spirit, right, because... Being clear about the rules and requirements and enforcing that is one thing, but making sure that you consider in terms of feedback and in terms of situations and treating people in a generous way pays off. And it does because there's no doubt the failure to comply with the government order is a valid reason. Mm. So you come to the next three parts in unfair dismissal, which is was it harsh, unreasonable and just? Well, it was certainly just because the facts were right. Okay, I think just is... Is it right? Is it right in relation to the facts as they exist? The classic example is, did the investigation really find A, B or C? If it didn't, it would be unjust, okay? Was it reasonable given the circumstance there? Well, it's incredibly reasonable because this person was not allowed to work by government. And the net last part is, well, would it be harsh? And this goes to your point. Well, it's certainly not harsh because every opportunity was provided and they were generous all the way through. And that's exactly what the Commission said. They said, it's a very good organisation. It's done the very best thing you can do. If we can go to the next case, which is Wilkinson, this is a case which I think is really interesting and has a much broader application for things like COVID going forward, whether it's government mandated or not. Here is a person who refused to be vaccinated and so was suspended and then put in a sick certificate and they said, well, sorry, you can't put in a sick certificate, you can't get sick leave because the definition in the Enterprise Agreement is the same as Section 99 of the Fair Work Act, which says it would be for hours you would ordinarily be able to work. And because you're suspended, you wouldn't ordinarily be able to work. So really interesting law. I, th I think this is probably the most interesting case of today. I think all employers have been generous around this process because they've thought, let's not make this harder than it needs to be. Let's if people are struggling with this emotionally and we can get them over the line, let's try and do the very best thing. I think this case has allowed us to say with a bit more clarity, look, this is really what's going to happen if you don't. COVID's one example of what the future looks like. It's not 
something will never happen again. There will be other instances where orders are given and directions given that people don't comply with and seek to use sick leave when they've been suspended. So please remember this case. Great case, and it's right in law. It's a it's a really well-reasoned, very good judgment. Yeah. The last case is Wybawa and vehicle monitoring. I think we're all going to experience a lot of this style of case going forward where COVID and other financial circumstances have led to a depletion in, in human capital. You know, there's less people doing work, works more complex. There's more work moving around in a disrupted environment. Rather than hiring someone, we share the next bit of work amongst a number of people. Mm-hmm. And the guy in this came back to his business and said, look, I know things are going are tough, but I've got too much work. I'm happy to renegotiate my contract and get paid differently mm-hmm. and be treated differently, but I can't do this level of work and I certainly it's not in my contract of employment. Okay? And the next day they made him redundant. And the evidence was around about that time they were looking at three people to be made redundant, which he was one. Mm-hmm. But the court said this is an adverse action claim. The onus sits with the employer. This was something that was clearly in your mind at the time and was a part of the decision-making towards moving for redundancy, and therefore it is adverse action. I think that's a warning bell. It's a good decision. It's Justice Riley, who is a strong employee advocate in the, on the bench. There's no doubt about that. She is. But I think she's absolutely right. Yeah. So I think the key there, everybody, is remembering that the onus is on the employer. So the fact that it's been, well, if it is, in fact, the fact that they've had it on their mind for the last three months... Where is the evidence to demonstrate that that had been the case and um, that a restructure was being considered, that consultation had occurred? Where is that? Yeah, and it's not there. And, I, and look, I know you were tired of me saying this because I keep saying it to you. Don't try and use performance management. Don't try and redund- use redundancy to cover a whole lot of sins. Redundancy is something which has a structure that sits in awards as to how you do it. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be deliberate. This is not something you can just fly with. If you're thinking about restructuring, put a document before the executive group that says, look, here is the financial need. This is the way the jobs would fall. This is what it looks. This is the category of people I think we have to look. These are the skills we need to retain. That's not hard. Mm. Then go down a consultation process, which is documented mm-hmm. and which gives people an opportunity to understand what is the decision that you've made and how to mitigate and revert the impact of that decision on you. That's what the award says. None of that occurred in this case. Yeah. So it's clearly a sham. Okay, topic for the day. I think what we're going to talk about today is how do we use people in our business and what is the new evidence about how more progressive economies are using people. Now, when I say more progressive economies, Australia struggles in, in its talent pool. It is a conservative talent pool that mm-hmm. exists here. It's a rules-based employment environment. Mm-hmm with people who are rules-based people, and that's terrific to live in, okay, because you see very few people drive badly. You see, you know, there's a whole lot of things about being a rules-based people which makes this a very safe and good place to live in. Mm-hmm. But in a highly disruptive, globalised world, rules-based people fall over themselves in change. So where would I go to look at a place that's not like that and how it's utilising talent? And you, you go to Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia, East Eastern Asia is two billion, so one half billion employees. So it's a good place to have a look at. And if you look at the models of engagement, they're not primarily employment anymore. So we've seen a massive upswing in what we'll call gig base. So that some of that is what we'd call more actively platform employees, people who work casually from a platform. Mm-hmm. So they're 
the those sort of people. And then you'd see freelancing Mm -hmm. as the other type of thing where individuals freelance to fill roles or parts of roles and collaborate amongst other freelancers to create solutions. Australia has a very low level of the platform-based people and it's growing as we adopt Asian behaviours around personal services. It's been historical in Asia for many years to have people doing things for you around the house, you're not doing it, including food and delivery of food. All that's been going on for years. Mm. What's changed dramatically, and it's changed dramatically in Australia, is skilled freelancing. So Australia in that group is, so Singapore uses 65% of talent in that group is individual skilled freelancing. Amazing. Australia's 60%. So Australia's already started to move at the high skill range. But what we've seen throughout Asia is, at the semi-skill range, there's been a massive uptake in the gig economy, and that is because if we look at Southeast Asia, the working population is under 30. These are people who are internet savvy, who have high levels of skills, various things, and have not enjoyed the benefits of a rules-based society where there is employment. There and where there's also urgency. Yeah, like there's, there's no delay gratification. It needs to be now. That's right, and they enjoy instant, they enjoy the capacity to switch off and go and do what they feel like doing. Mm which is a demographic of our kids as well. So I guess the question that Karen's going to help us answer is, we know in 20 or 30 years the primary method of engagement will not be employment. That's that's just the truth. If I live long enough, I will know that if I'm running an organisation, the people in here will be be over 60 to 70% non-employees and there will be a core employee group. It is the only way we can meet the highly disruptive and the escalating disruption of the future and to innovate and be clever and to continue to move and bring in the best talent all the time because there's a world of talent out there. Mm -hmm. So, Karen, maybe we go over to you and ask that question and say, well, how do you go through this process of analysing what is the talent I need and where am I going to get it from? All right, so rethinking talent and resourcing. So, look, I think at the moment I know that probably the majority of you on the call have got open roles and vacancies across your business that you may be struggling to fulfil or if not, soon to realise that or experience that. I think what we, I want to challenge you all to think about how we access talent and how we resource roles compared to what we're used to, which has been traditionally when a person vacates a role or usually when a person leaves a role, that our thinking is very much focused on replacing that person. Usually that person, we want another version of you, Andrew, or we need a... I think that's highly unlikely. That's probably... And this goes to the point of my issue, (laughs) why that can't work, right? So we either think it's like, I want another Sophie or another Andrew, or it would be we need another marketing person or, you know, principal lawyer or whatever it is you need, right? So you could do that, but I challenge you to think about what what is it about that role? What are the key capabilities of that role that you absolutely need to fulfil? And... Before you even answer that question, go back organisationally and figure out, do we need this role? What is it that we're trying to do as a business? Because what we're trying, what you're trying to do as a business, Andrew, 12 months ago, your business that is, and what you're doing now is different. I guess coming to that point, we once employed people to fulfil a role, Mm. whereas we're now hiring people for emergent roles. That's correct. That's correct. So with that, once you've had that rethink there, and you can define what the capability is, which would then create the role, which would be the core role plus space to be able to do different things, okay, and to learn and grow and evolve and adapt with the business, then you go to resourcing. Now, the great thing about just this topic here around resourcing is when I 
created this little mind map for myself to prepare for today. If we look at resourcing, you've got your traditional um, directly employed employees, you've got, you know, direct casuals, you've got labour, you've got freelancers, independent contracts, you've got specialist service providers, you've got job sharing arrangements where we can go, well, maybe we can just get everybody else to do a little bit more out of their general scope. There's automation or technology that we could use. And that's, I'm talking about borderless too, Andrew, and I'm talking about within Australia. So when you look at that in terms of that green, the green circle there, whether it is you think about doing, is it talent that we need to recruit in full or in part? What part of it can we automate or should we or can we that we would get a more reliable result that's sustainable or is it better for us to consider in part or in full to outsource it? Now, I don't have an answer for you. I only have questions that will get you closer to an answer that's right for your group, your organisation. But that's me, Andrew. What do yeah, you think? Yeah, look, I, I think this comes back to something which probably scares me more than most people because we've had to adjust in our own business. And if you look at our business, which has grown threefold over the last two years, we do all of these things. So we've set up a separate automation business to take out a whole lot of work mm. using AI. We've done a whole lot of things to change the mix of work we've got so we keep our talent doing talented work. The thing that strikes me down each time is I'm a person who likes people to work with me forever. And in fact, when you look at who's around me, Kim, you, other people, we've been around each other for a very, very long period of time and I love that. But the difficulty is roles, because they're emergent, are moving and changing very dramatically. And as we adjust to an economy which is increasingly disruptive, what was once retention is now can be a drag. So long term, not you, not you and <laughs> because you guys are enormously adaptable and continue to grow and expand into new roles and go off to university. But my point about this is Australia is used to hiring people through university, recognising qualification and hiring people for life. Mm. The rest of the world doesn't give a shit about qualification. It wants expertise. It wants the ability to move, turn, to be highly skilled, to pick up skills. It needs adjustable, flexible, clever people. And they have talent overseas that does that. And for Australia to keep up, it's got to stop looking at, and you know, the last two businesses I went out to see last this week, a business that had 10, 15, 20-year retention. And we're dealing with issues around the inability to change, the inability to innovate because people are so accustomed and so comfortable in their role, they're reluctant to innovate and change. And those businesses are being damaged through disruption. So the reason Karen and I are talking about this is how we used to recruit is no longer useful. Mm -hmm. We are recruiting for an unknown future and we're recruiting talent that can adjust to that. And we're not saying 20 years is great. We're saying, look, if we've got you for five or six years and you're giving us your best, fantastic. But maybe we don't want an employee because this is such a volatile changing environment. We want to draw upon different skills, which we do regularly here in certain parts of our roles. Yeah. It's recruiting for with purpose, but retention, same kind of thinking as well there, Andrew. It's not we're not retaining for the sake of retaining. We want to keep the best talent for those who want to be here, provide. It's going to be a joint thing, right? And, look, that, and that talent is different. The way we scope talent now, mm. what we need about talent is the capacity to move and change with comfort, the capacity and desire to innovate and the focus, the, the sharpened focus on product and service. That's why I'm going back to school, Andrew. I know, because you haven't learned it. I know, um, I know. There we go. All right, well, <laughs> let's, um, let's go on to the case study for today. Okay. So demolition under construction kings, ducks, demolish buildings for new constructions specialising in private dwellings. 
the company was experiencing significant financial distress. Profit had been wiped off, tax bills remained unpaid, and urgent action needed to be taken to right the business. Jasmine, the CFO, was losing talent as employees looked for more flexibility or were poached into higher-paying jobs. When Desmond, a debt collection clerk, resigned, Jasmine shared his work across two remaining accounts receivable clerks. She also had them assist the quantity surveyor undertaking estimates as the older of the two surveyors retired following a nasty dose of long COVID. Dragon, one of the accounts receivable clerks, enjoyed the new work for a while but then felt burdened by it. He spoke to Jasmine, telling her he was close to burnout and didn't feel it was safe. He said it was experiencing acute anxiety episodes, which he had never suffered from before. Jasmine was concerned by the impact on Dragon and others and chatted to her external accountants who suggested utilising their advanced accounting systems and, and staff to complete the work more accurately and efficiently. Jasmine spoke to Dragon the next day to explain they were thinking of outsourcing several roles, including his, as it would be cheaper, better and safer for all involved. Dragon's anxiety heightened and he lost control of his temper, shouting at Jasmine, is this it? I'm gone, am I? You are destroying my life. This was followed by a panic attack requiring the assistance of paramedics. When Dragon arrived at work the next day, he looked dis- uh, dishevelled. That's the word. Dishevelled. I knew it. Did I get it right? <laughs> Eventually, yeah. Yes, okay. And distressed. A couple more years study, you'll, oh, you'll kill it. you're such a man. I'll deal with you later. Anyway, when Dragon arrived at work, oh, hang on. (laughs) He told Jasmine he couldn't keep going like this and handed her a workers' compensation claim. Jasmine agreed with him and handed Dragon his termination letter saying, I know it is just too hard for you. I have added a few extra weeks on top of the notice and severance pay. Good luck, Dragon. All right, we're coming to the questions now. Let's get the first question up. And the question is, Dragon was an award-based employee was the consultation adequate? So was the consultation adequate? Well, absolutely not, okay? For the reasons Karen and I have already talked about, you can't begin consultation until you've made a dedicated decision, Mm -hmm. okay? So there has to be a decision. You've got to record that decision. Once you record that decision, you've got to have based that upon appropriate financial financial and organisational information. That needs to be documented. You then go into a consultation process first, across the group and then individually explaining how the decision was made, seeking their input under an award as to how you're going to avert or mitigate the impact upon them. Mm-hmm. And you take that all into consideration before you proceed along that pathway. None of that occurred. Andrew, how is it different if he wasn't an award-based employee? If he wasn't an award-based employee, then there are some differences that exist. So if you put this, if you're outside 158,000, which is the which is the um, income threshold. Yeah, the minimum the income yeah. threshold, then actually you can make people done pretty easy. Yeah. Okay. Which for some of you on the line, if you find yourself in that circumstance and how you calculate that income threshold, there are a couple of factors in that. So, but if you, this is, this is kind of a red zone as well. I want to just call yeah, that. Yeah, no, Andrew. no, sorry, you're good. And because I had such a big night last night, I was slow to respond. Yeah, I had to, I had to you get know, back. You the double O, double five voice. <laughs> yes, that's a bottle and a half of red wine. Yep. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's go for the next question. Would Dragon have a good adverse action claim. I want you to want those who are thinking about this and remember Burke and Suncorp to go, what was that case about? Have a think about that. While we're waiting for that, Clive is back online. He says, you look great in black. 
That's all I've ever worn, Clive. It's the same T-shirt you see me in every <laughs> Good to time. see you back on the I do have about 100 of these, Clive, by the way. And, and thanks, Kay and uh, Adam and a few others for the commentaries around project management. Good to see you back online, Adam. Great stuff. Okay, let's get the answer coming up. The answer is this. Would he have a great adverse action? He would have a Monty of an adverse action. First, because he's raised a complaint about the manager in which he's been dealt with oh. and he's been made redundant. Adverse action, we saw that case earlier, okay? But the one that I deliberately stuck in there is the health-related issue. Birkin Suncorp was the young insurance clerk who didn't fill out claims forms correctly, but he was seen with clearly degraded mental health over a period of time, which would have put anybody on notice there was something wrong. And the court said anybody seeing this person would know there is a problem. You can't performance manage them. In this case, anybody who saw Dragon, particularly the person who was causative of it, would and did notice her language to make it safe for him. She recognised he had a mental health issue. Mm. Gone. Yeah. Okay, so great adverse action claim. Yeah. And the reason we're telling these stories is process is so important. So even if you're dealing with someone over a higher income threshold, doing the right thing is both morally good, but it also means it's utterly defensible. Yep. Let's have our last question. Would Duck and Jasmine be at risk under workers' compensation law? Now, this is interesting. Before you try and answer this, I want you to think of the anti-discrimination provisions that exist in all workers' compensation in relation to a person raising a workers' comp claim and being treated in a particular way. I know that's giving half the answer away. It's 575 in Victoria. So that people can't unclick anyway. <laughs> yeah, too, too late for that. Sorry. <laughs> I wonder if that line going across there is actually... No, that's our countdown. That's our countdown, yeah, as yeah. I thought so, yeah, because it seemed to be receding. Now that I know that, and that could mean I'm a slow learner, could mean I'm hungover, I should have picked <laughs> it up. Not that badly hungover. Like, I think we're down to three, two, one that's a bit like me, traffic lights, nearly... nearly now you got to go, Andrew. Okay, go, I'm going, going, look at this. Yes, they would. The answer is, if you treat somebody adversely as a result of them raising a workers' comp claim or threatening to raise a workers' comp claim, it is an offence both for an individual to do it and for the organisation, and it is a really substantial fine in, in Victoria. It's 240 penalty units, which is a hell of a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I just want you to understand those discrimination provisions have the same reverse onus as well. So when someone tells you they're unwell and going to put in a claim, think very carefully before you do anything. Yeah, because you already just covered up here. There's a, the risk of the adverse action claim plus workers' comp. You add that bill together, potentially, that's, that's huge. Right. And they will, the claim will get up and then you'll not be able to re-employ the person and so it's going to max out the claim. So if we looked at that as a claim and just say this business was a $10 million turnover business, in the nature of the work that they're doing, oh, that's a $400,000 claim. Well, okay. how much of profit is that? So anyway. Yeah, well, if, if you look at the average 10 to 12% return for a business, $4 million to replace some revenue. Hey, we did all right on time. We're doing okay. We're, we've got seconds left, I might say. But we're not going to hang in too long. Thank you very much for coming along. The new LinkedIn process is going great, I think, and we're, we're loving the feedback we're getting between. Keep giving us that feedback and sharing because our community is growing. We love it. Yep, and on LinkedIn, guys, you will be able to share the event as well. So there's other practitioners and colleagues in the field that you think uh, will benefit from this content. Please feel free to share. Okay, great to see you. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. Bye-bye.